proposition from rev george junkin part c from bible defense of slavery by josiah priest this librivox recording is in the public domain proposition from rev george junkin part c mr moderator it has been argued on this floor from this very passage that we are bound to manumit all the slaves we have here an admission which might have saved me the preceding labor however it is performed and you have it you have also the concession of the opposite side that to be under the yoke means to be slaves let us keep this the douloi of whom paul here speaks our abolition brethren admit were slaves but then what will we do with isaiah we will take his language for just what it means and it is obvious at a glance that the prophet is correcting abuses in the context referred to as in the days of nehemiah the hebrews had gradually disregarded the laws relative to the treatment of their slaves they did not release at the end of the sixth year nor even at the jubilee they treated their hebrew servants with rigor contrary to law these illegal exactions he would correct the law forbid the hebrew to make his brother serve with rigor this isaiah would restore to loose the bands of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens the law ordered the slave to be set free of whom the master had broken a tooth or destroyed an eye this the prophet enforces and to let the oppressed the broken as it signifies go free that is for his eyes or his tooth's sake the law made all hebrew slaves free at the end of six years and here the prophet like nehemiah enforces the law let every man who is entitled by the law to his freedom go free break ye off every yoke to infer from the general term every yoke that those who were not by law entitled to freedom must obtain it is not to interpret but to pervert the prophet's language servants obey your masters in all things is paul's injunction no to infer that they are to do things in obedience to man which god has forbidden is to pervert and not to interpret paul so here exactly to infer from the general term every yoke that the prophet means to oblige the israelite to manumit those servants whom the law expressly says he may keep as servants forever is not to explain isaiah but to pervert his obvious intent and meaning again the servants in this context are exhorted to account their own masters worthy of all honor hence according to the mode of interpretation we refute the inference must be that they should account these masters worthy of divine worship for this is included in all honor if every yoke necessarily means all slaves absolutely 
and all absolutely are commanded by Isaiah to be set free, then all honor must include divine reverence and adoration, and so these slaves must worship their masters as gods. Such absurdities follow from neglect of that canon of interpretation which sound criticism and common sense have, for ages, established and deemed incontrovertible, namely, that general terms must be subjected to such restrictions as the nature of the subject and the scope or drift of the writer require. In the present instance, by this rule, all honor means all honor properly belonging to the relation of master and servant, as regulated by the laws and reputable usages of the community. So in Isaiah, all yokes, or every yoke, means every one which, according to the law and reputable use, required to be broken off. 3. My third remark on this passage of Timothy is that these douloi under the yoke are exhorted to account their own masters worthy of all honor. The word for masters is despotes, absolute lords. It was before stated that this is a strong term. It is used in Simeon's prayer, Luke chapter 2 verse 29, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. In Acts chapter 4 verse 24, Lord, thou art God. Revelation chapter 6 verse 10, How long, O Lord? Jude verse 4, Denying the only Lord God, etc. The term properly signifies absolute Lord or Master, and this has its proper correlate in doulos as a slave. Now these despots are to be accounted worthy of all honor, and Christian slaves are commanded not to despise their believing masters, but to serve them, to perform the part of slaves to them. Here is the very contradictory, the exact opposite of abolitionism. Instead of condemning and despising and purloining and running away from their masters, as some teach they ought, these slaves are exhorted and commanded to respect and love, to abide with and faithfully to serve their despots. 4. We may observe again the reason enforcing this obedience and respectful demeanor. It is that the religion of these Christian slaves may be commended to their masters and to all men. Christianity is not a religion of violent, civil, and political revolutions. It never organizes a political party. Its interference, rude and violent interference with civil arrangements, would cause its author's name to be blasphemed and his doctrines to be abhorred and rejected. 5. Timothy is not left at liberty to teach or not to teach. This doctrine of the subordination of slaves to their own masters, Paul lays it on him preemptorily, 
these things teach and exhort. It is quite possible that the colonizationists, the only true and efficient friends of the colored race, have fallen behind the line of duty in this thing. For love of peace, from an earnest desire to avoid violent excitement, we have neglected Paul's injunction. We have so held back as to produce the impression upon the minds of the opponents of Paul's doctrine, that we felt ourselves at a loss for anything to say in his defense. You have seen them in this synod, daring and braving and bantering us. I am for peace, but when I speak, for battle they are keen. 6. The Apostle points out the origin of the opposite teaching. And here, Mr. Moderator, I am sorry I shall be obliged to say some things extremely unpleasant, unpleasant to our brethren, hard for them to endure, because they will come with blistering severity, unpleasant for me to utter, only because of the pain they may occasion. The alienation of affection, the heart-burnings and jealousies that will probably follow, not because they are uncalled for and unavoidable, they are become imperiously necessary. These very brethren have made the issue and forced us upon it. Faithfulness to God's word will no longer tolerate mincing and mouthing with great caution. We must expound it according to its plain and obvious truth and meaning. If the two-edged sword meet with matter to cut, let it cut. If a festering ulcer fret and fatten on the body ecclesiastical, let the scalpel reach its core, and let the probe search its depth. I say, then, that Paul finds the origin of abolitionism in the vanity, self-conceit, and puffed-up pride of the human heart. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, etc. Now, to teach otherwise is to teach other and opposite doctrine to that which he teaches, viz., that slaves should respect, love, and serve their own masters. If any man teach opposite to these doctrines, if he teach modern anti-slavery doctrines, such as abound in their publications and speeches, he is tetuifoti, proud, we have it translated. But I appeal to every Greek scholar if it do not mean vain, puffed up, self-conceited. But I will not trust to Greek scholars only. I will refer you to better authority. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Speaking of the qualifications of a bishop, Paul says he must be not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. The word in our text, then, translated, he is proud, means such a lifting up with pride as greatly endangers the person's falling into the condemnation of the devil. Again, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, speaking of the last days, the days in which we live, sir, and of the perilous times that shall come, 
he says, Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, traitors, heady, high-minded. Does not this mean puffed up with vain pride and contemptible self-conceit? The form of the word does not again occur in the New Testament, but nearly the same we have once. Matthew chapter 12 verse 20. The smoking flax he will not quench. The primary idea is taken from the thick vapory smoke, which ascends from damp straw or weeds, when they are kindled with fire, but before the flame acquires strength to consume the foggy smoke. How forcibly does this describe the state of a self-conceited mind, which supposes itself the origin of light and truth and wisdom, and wrapping itself round and round in the fog and smoke of its own vanity, and ascending amid the cloud of its own incense, looks down with pity or with scorn upon the ignorant world below. The history of modern abolitionism, as to its origin, will be found to tally with this picture. A vigorous young man was refused promotion in the service of the American Colonization Society. He became offended, removed to a neighboring city, set up an opposition paper, and thus became the father of the modern anti-slavery movement. Who the mother may have been is now difficult to tell. That honor may, perhaps, by a little slip of chronology, be conferred on Abby Kelly. At least, she is laboriously discharging the duties of a dry nurse. 7. Let us mark, in the last place, the consequences of a system of movements which has such an origin. Could they be expected to be characterized by meekness, wisdom, humility, brotherly kindness, charity? As well might the lamb and kid claim paternity from the hyena and the wolf. But see what Paul says. Whereof cometh envy, strife, railing, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. To this charge, Mr. Moderator, our brethren of this synod, on behalf of the original abolitionists, now the Garrison and Abby Kelly party, have pleaded guilty. They have distinctly admitted the correctness of Paul's prophetic representations. But for themselves, and thus far we gladly admit the plea, and for the great body of abolitionists, they plead not guilty and attempt to wash their hands of all the infidel party's doings. We must not, whilst we let off our brethren individually, and as ministers of God, from the weight of this charge, we must not, we cannot, in faithfulness to Paul and to truth, let the abolition movement escape. We contend that the infidel abolitionists the no-government men and women, the anarchial party, are the real, true, and only consistent anti-slavery men and women. They are the sound logicians who have fearlessly followed out the fundamental principle of the movement. 
it were easy to show that if you once admit the simple relation of master and servant irrespective of cruelty and abuses to be in itself sinful then you must deny the morality of the temporary existence of the relation for if it is a sin in itself it must be so whether it be of long or short duration surely if to hold a man in bondage for life say thirty years is a sin to hold him ten five one year is a sin too but the relation of parent and child involves obligations of the latter to obey the former hence this too must be abandoned next goes that of husband and wife next that of civil ruler and ruled the original abolitionists have clearly seen that all these relations are spoken of in the same scriptures that speak of master and servant and they have logically inferred that the arguments which go to make the simple relation a sin in the one will equally nullify the whole the infidel abolitionists are the sound reasoners in this case we therefore hold the movement as a whole responsible for the horrible results which our brethren here deplore equally with us thus by six plain passages of scripture have i proved the fourth and fifth propositions that the new testament recognizes the existence of slavery and that it prescribes the duties of servants to their masters and masters to their servants and yet in no instance does it forbid slaves to obey or masters to retain their slaves no text commands masters to liberate their slaves let us now hear the conclusion of the whole scriptural argument i have demonstrated five distinct propositions in regard to the old testament which see as to the new testament i have laid down two distinct general propositions and supported them by five distinct subordinate ones one there is not a sentence in the new testament which expressly forbids the having and the holding of a slave two there is not a sentence in the new testament which by fair and just interpretation according to the rules of grammar gives ground for the logical inference that the simple holding of a slave or slaves is inconsistent with christian profession and christian character the five which go to prove the truth of these are one that the greek word doulos usually translated servant properly and commonly means a person held to service for life a slave this was proved by a reference to all the cases of its occurrence in the new testament by classes and by its contrast with the opposite term eleutheros this means free doulos is the opposite and must mean a slave two with an inference paul advises servants to abide quietly in their condition this he could not do if the relation of master and servant were 
in itself a sin this was proved and the inference was sustained three with an inference the new testament recognizes some masters as good men true and faithful believers therefore the relation of master and slave may exist consistently with christian character and profession four the new testament recognizes the existence of slavery five the new testament prescribes the duties of servants to their masters and of masters to their servants enjoining obedience to the one and kind treatment from the other as to these propositions both relative to the old and new testament i am aware the practiced logician may take exception on the ground of form and arrangement he may say they are not always distinct they overlap in some places this is admitted and was perhaps not wholly avoidable in an argument designed not exclusively for the practiced reasoner but mainly for the popular mind the truth however is the main matter and to this i invite the attention of any who may choose to reply i hope the brethren will not flinch if any man chooses to controvert any one of them let him do it not by declaiming against the horrors of slavery or the impiety of asserting that the bible tolerates it let us not have popular appeals but logical scriptural argument let no man content himself with a tirade against my inferences let him come up fearlessly to my propositions if he can refute them or any of them then he may shake public confidence in the inferences until then they will stand unmoved in the solid judgment of thinking men whatever excitement may be raised by pathetic appeals to human sympathy and the weaknesses of men and women the inferences which i deduce from the preceding propositions are two viz one according to the bible a man may stand in the relation of a master and hold slaves and yet be a fair and reputable and consistent professor of the religion of the bible two there is no power on earth no authority in the church to make the holding or the not holding of a slave a term of communion or condition of admission to the privileges of the church for cruelty to their slaves in any form for unkind and harsh treatment for violent and abusive language even masters may be censured and if such offences against the word of god be preserved in may be suspended and ultimately excommunicated but if a master treats his servants as the bible commands him to do there is no power in church officers to censure or excommunicate him simply because he is a master because he holds slaves hence the corollary whoever assume and exercise such power do therein usurp the prerogative of the king and head of the church and expose themselves to the penalties of such 
as lord it over God's heritage. Such violate a plain precept of God's word. Be not many masters, neither as being lords over God's heritage. They thrust themselves into the throne and exercise a power which Christ has not granted to the officers of the church, but which he has forbidden to be exercised. They become themselves the usurping despots, and make the freemen of God their slaves. You see, Mr. Moderator, I proceed upon the principle that the King of Zion only can settle the terms or conditions of admission to membership in his visible kingdom. If any man deny this, I cannot here enter into controversy with him. But assuming this as indubitably true, the corollary follows by an inevitable logical necessity. What then have we gained by this whole argument? Simply this, that slavery, the relation of master and slave, not, you will observe, any violence, not any cruel treatment, but simply the relation, is tolerated in the Holy Scriptures. I have not said the Bible sanctions it, the Bible commands it, except in the case of forfeiture of liberty by crime, but the Bible permits it. Nowhere does it command masters to manumit their slaves. End of Proposition from Rev. George Junkin, Part C.